Hey, we've been in this series that we've titled Vision Next now for a couple of weeks. This is the third message. The title this morning is uh, Stand Firm. And we're going to be looking at uh, not one solid passage, but several passages this morning. Hope that you'll take notes. Before we begin, I want to take a moment uh, to remember and honor the life of uh, Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham's uh, ministry impacted my life in far-reaching ways. And uh, I imagine if we went around this room this morning, uh, each of us would have some story, whether large or small, about how this man, God used this man to impact our lives. I, I uh, had the opportunity to attend a couple of his crusades. Um, I think my earliest connection with Billy Graham was uh, through one of his movies that he began making back in the 60s and 70s through his television broadcasts, uh, his writing. I have several of his books on the shelves of my library. Uh, his innovations that have shaped the evangelical church uh, in, in, and the world, really, in numerous ways, the church uh, in general. And uh, he was a uniquely godly, uniquely consecrated, uniquely gifted man. And his presence and his influence will be greatly missed. You know, as I was thinking about Billy Graham this week, I, I was thinking about the way he came to Christ and, and understanding that it, he, he accepted Christ through a Sunday school teacher. And it made me stop and think, you know, is the next Billy Graham growing up in one of our homes here? Uh, is he in our church? Is, is he in one of our kids' life classes or in our youth ministry? And, and if that's even remotely possible, what's our responsibility to the young people in our church and, and, and in our community. And uh, I just want to say thank you to those who are faithfully teaching our kids uh, because you are uh, making a contribution, making an investment in their lives that will form a foundation for a lifetime of following Jesus. And I hope you're, I hope you're viewing it that way, that you're not viewing your ministry as just filling a gap or filling a hole and, until somebody else comes along but uh, that you know that God has uniquely called you to lay a foundation uh, in the life and the lives of children. Well, what is vision next? I'm not going to take a bunch of time. I've just wanted each Sunday to touch on this a little bit more, but vision next is a three-year generosity initiative that the leaders of our church feel uh, we need to enter into at this time. Um, At the end of the campaign, the initiative, we will... Um, as God provides, be in a position to uh, purchase something, <laughs> whether that's land on which we can build our own facility or it's a building that we can renovate for our purposes. And uh, we hope that you will uh, become a part of this. We hope that you'll be praying for it, first of all. We hope that in time you will give generously and sacrificially uh, to what God wants to do. Uh, we don't want to presume on on what God wants. Um, we feel like he's leading us in this direction. And so, and so we're stepping out. Someone came up to me after one of the present, one of the presentations I did this week about vision next. And, you know, he kind of took me off to the side and said, so what do you think is really realistic here? And I said, realistic in my life means I'm a chicken, you know? Realistic in my life means I look at my resources and I say, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work. But, but here's what I know. I know that God can take a little and make it much. 
And uh, little for each of us has a different definition. And, and I know I'm asking you as your pastor to pray into this. I'm asking you to think yourself into it. And I'm asking you to give generously and sacrificially. If you want to know more about Vision Next, here's a couple of ways. You can go to mylpclacy.com, which is what we refer to as our central hub. There's a link there to Vision Next. Uh, also, um, in a couple of weeks, not this week, but the following week, the week of March 4 through 10, there are going to be a couple of vision meetings. Uh, and if you have not yet had a, a full kind of exposure to what Vision Next is about, you're invited, you will be invited to be a part of one of those vision meetings. And if you, don't, if you wonder whether you're in our database, if you would take out your connection card right now uh, and just write on their vision meetings and provide us with your email, we'll make sure you get invited to be a part of this. And if you're thinking that LifePoint is your church, I hope that you will at least come and, and find out what it's really all about. You get some free dessert out of the deal, uh, I promise. But here's what I know is that Vision Next is dependent first on prayer. It's just flat out dependent on prayer. And to that end, we have uh, acquired these very stylish wristbands that will be the, uh, the this will set you apart at any party you attend uh, if you have this on your wrist. But it just says LifePoint Church on one side. The other side, it says Vision Next. And uh, we hope that uh, that you'll wear these. Uh, you can wear them in the shower. You, you can wear these anywhere. You could even make earrings out of them, I suspect, you know. Uh, or if you're like kids these days, you could put one in your nose. Who, who knows? But, but uh, they, are very, they are very sharp, aren't they? So wear a wristband. We have a prayer calendar. These are available back at the, the information table. It's a prayer request for each day of this 40 days of prayer. There's a prayer vigil coming up uh, March 23rd and 24th, 24-hour prayer vigil. You'll have the opportunity to sign up for that as well, and we hope that, that you will be a part of that because we are just presenting ourselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, would you, would you provide in a, in a big way, in a bigger way than you have in the past, and, and uh, that's what we're asking him for. Well, we're in this series examining the story of the Israelite nation's crossing of the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua, the successor to Moses. And they're crossing over the Jordan River to take possession of the land of Canaan, what we know now today as the land of Israel, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants forever. So they've come, as we've seen, to the Jordan River in the spring. The river is at flood stage. It's overflowing its banks. Uh, geologists have estimated that, that it's possible that in those days before the Jordan River was extensively dammed and used for irrigation, that this river at flood stage may have been as, as wide as two and a half miles. And uh, it's, uh, it's a huge river. It's a, 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 an enormous barrier to Israel's progress. We've been referring to it as the river of impossibility. And God told Joshua to command the Levitical priests to take up the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. It was carried on wooden poles and, and make their way to the edge of the river. At the same time, he ordered the people to set their eyes on the Ark and to follow it. And he says, as soon as you see it moving, you be ready to follow. This morning, I want to talk about 
the ministry of intercessory prayer. Because the whole of this story of the crossing of the Jordan has at its center this this discipline, this commitment to intercessory prayer. We'll, We'll be taking another look at this story through the lens of three elements that come together to provide a powerful image of intercessory prayer. First, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the Levitical priests, and then the call to prayer. So the first element this morning is, of course, and as we have seen, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is really the central character, if you will, if you can call it a character, in this story. The Ark was the symbol of the presence and the power of God among the people of God, the symbol of the power and the presence of God among the people of God. In Joshua 3.11, we read this, that behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. And the Israelites would have understood it is the Lord who is passing before us into the Jordan. It's the Lord that's going ahead of us into this river. The Lord is the first one in. He's the last one out. The ark also represented very vividly both the holiness of God and the love of God. God is holy. He is always holy. He never stops being holy. He is perfectly holy. And God is love. He is always love. He never stops being love. He is perfect love. Neither of those characteristics is primary, neither is secondary. He is simultaneously holy and loving. God is holy, he is love. God is love, he is holy. These two things stand together as the character of God. But here's something we haven't seen yet in this series, and and it's this, that the ark foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. The ark foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. The ark contained stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were engraved by the finger of God. Those stone tablets represented the law of God, the holiness of God, if you will. Because behind that law stands his total holiness. Behind that law stands his perfect righteousness. And so as relates to the law, as we relate to the law, we understand that God is the holy and righteous judge. That's the bad news. In Hebrews 9, 5, the cover or the lid of the ark is called the propitiatory. Would you say that word with me? Propitiatory. Say it again. Propitiatory. You'll never have to ever use that word again, but I just wanted you to say it once in your life. It's called the propitiatory or the atonement cover. That word propitiation or propitiatory generically means in a variety of religions, generically means to turn away the wrath of a deity by means of a sacrifice. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago that the high priest, as the representative of all of the people of Israel, would once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, enter the most holy place in the tabernacle, later in the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and he would sprinkle on that one day of the year the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat. And in doing that, he would offer the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the people. You see that word atonement, and it means at one meant, that as the sacrifice is made, we are put at one with God. Now listen to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 2. He, that is Jesus, is is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The lid of the ark, the the propitiatory, the atonement cover, is Jesus. It represents Jesus. Verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 John, in this is love, not that We have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Now notice this. The propitiatory, the the lid of that ark, perfectly covered the law inside the ark. Exodus 25, verse 10 They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. So a cubit is roughly 18 inches. So we're talking about 45 inches in length, 27 inches in breadth. And notice verses 16 to 17. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony that I shall give you. You shall put it into the ark of the testimony that I shall give you. And you shall make a cover of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. What does that tell us? That that lid perfectly covered the box. In the box is the law. The lid is the propitiatory. It's the symbol of atonement. The symbol of atonement perfectly covers the law. In Hebrews 9.5, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. And the Israelites, in seeing the cherubim there, pictured the ark as the throne of God, the seat of God. Fast forward to Hebrews 11, verses 11 to 14. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the the high priest in the temple and the priest that worked alongside the high priest. He says, and every priest, every priest stands daily, stands, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, listen now, can never take away sins. You feel like you have a futile job, right? You go to work every day, you say, what am I accomplishing? You come home from work, you go, what did I accomplish today? 
See, the priests knew what they were doing. They they were offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. But but understand this, that the the sacrifices, all of the blood that flowed in the streets of Jerusalem could never take away the sins of the people. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down, no longer standing, work done. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, don't miss this, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ offered one sacrifice for all sin of all people, including you, for all time. The propitiation of Christ is a perfect fit for our failure. It perfectly and completely covers all of our sin. Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior for very imperfect people. You see, God did not meet with Israel at the level of the law. He met with them at the level of the mercy seat. Exodus 25, 21 to 22, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. It was Martin Luther when he was translating the Old Testament into German who first referred to the propitiatory as the mercy seat. Because to attempt to come to God on the basis of the law would mean for us that we are condemned and we were separated from God for all of eternity. You and I can only meet him on the basis of his mercy through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. (coughs) Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Paul said in another place, the law was given to condemn us, not to save us. The law was given to condemn us, to show us our need for a Savior. He says the end of the law, the goal of the law, where the law will lead you, if you will allow it, is to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because as you stand before the law, you are helpless and condemned, desperately in need of a Savior. The law confronts us with our sin. It can only condemn us. It can only show us our sinfulness. It only reminds us constantly of our failure, our helplessness. But God chose in his mercy not only to confront us with the law inside the box, and we must be confronted with the law, He chose not only to confront us with the law, instead he chooses also to comfort us at the mercy seat. And it is there at the place of atonement, the propitiatory, the the mercy seat, the atonement cover, he gently invites us to meet with him, to enter into a relationship with him, to receive his love and his mercy and his grace. 
You know, I've been trying over these past several weeks to just kind of live inside this story a little bit, uh, to project myself into it, into what the people might have been thinking and feeling as, as, uh, as they made this journey. And this week, God showed me something that I had never, ever seen. In chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, we read that the flow of the river from Adam was cut off. A place called Adam. Chapter 3, 15 to 16, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. Now, doesn't it make sense to you that God, if he wanted to stop that river, could have stopped it anywhere he chose? A God who can do that has lots of options. But God chose to stop the flow of the river at a place called Adam, and I'm sure he had a purpose, as he always does in everything he does. The river flowing from Adam was cut off. Any of you starting to tune into this? There was nothing that the Israelites could have done in their own strength, their own power, their own cleverness to stop the flow of the Jordan, the river of impossibility. Only God could do that, and he did, at a place called Adam. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. There is a river flowing down to us today and to our children and to our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, to the whole of humanity. It's flowing down to us from our common ancestor, Adam. It is the river of condemnation. It is the river of death, which is the just consequence of our sin and our rebellion against God. There is nothing that you and I can do on our own to stop the river. We are helpless to save ourselves. We are born into Adam's family, and we all share this one family trait, sin, which separates us from God. Romans 5, 8 to 9 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that when we put our trust in the accomplishment of Christ on our behalf, all of the consequence, all of the condemnation stemming from Adam is cut off. And by faith we are enabled to cross over into our inheritance in Christ. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? This is the message we proclaim. Life in the name of Jesus. Just over a week ago on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 
a troubled, mentally ill young man named Nicholas Cruz entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida with a weapon and the intent to kill, and he did. Seventeen died that day. Fourteen more were wounded. Absolutely horrifying. Among the dead are a teacher, a coach, the school's athletic director, who were each killed while attempting to protect defenseless students. And these will be remembered and rightfully honored as heroes. We have now learned that a school resource officer, uh, an armed, duly authorized officer of the law, present at the scene with both the power and the opportunity to make a difference, did not enter the building, did not act, did not intervene. And I'm not here to judge that man this morning because I don't know what I would have done in a similar situation. And and we all would hope that, that we would do something more, something different. We weren't there. Uh, he was. And yet I wonder, is he a graphic representation of the church in a dying world? The message of the gospel is that God entered the building in the person of Jesus Christ, and he laid down his life so that we might live. And here we are, the church of Jesus Christ, present in the world, people wounded and dying all around us, entering into eternity unwarned, unaddressed, uninformed, unsaved. We have the opportunity. We have the means to make an eternal difference. But lacking courage... We stand outside the building, more concerned for our own well-being, our own safety, our own future, waiting and hoping that someone else with greater courage will show up and do what we know he has called us to do. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I'm sending you. Would you like me to get off of that now? Second element in the story are the Levitical priests. Joshua 3.3 identifies these priests as Levitical priests. It sounds mysterious, but it simply means that they were members of the tribe of Levi, um, guy who owned a blue jean business. Uh, third son of Jacob, also known, who was also known as Israel. The role of a priest is very basically, uh, to stand before God on behalf of the people, to intercede between man and God, to speak to God on, on behalf of the people. And what a priest does is he, he grabs hold of the people of God and he, he grabs hold of God and he stands in between. And he intercedes with God on behalf of the people. He's the mediator whose office it is to meet and satisfy the claims of God upon those for whom he acts, who who secures pardon and favor, which each of us as sinners must have if if we're to enjoy fellowship with God. And this and more more than this, we have in our great 
high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Moses' direction, these Levitical priests were in charge of everything pertaining to the tabernacle and its furnishings. Let me read from Numbers chapter 1. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. The Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. You see, this meant that they were the, they were the guardians. They were the protectors. They were the custodians of the tabernacle. And when the camp of the Israelites was set up, the tents of the Levites were pitched surrounding the tabernacle, between the tabernacle and the people. And whenever the camp moved, they were the roadies. They were the set-up and take-down crew. Is this starting to resonate with anybody here? See, you who drive the vans, who pull the trailers, you who unload the vans and trailers each Sunday morning, you who arrive early to set things up, you who stay late to take things down and put them all back in the box, never forget that the work you do is high-level work. Never forget that the items you take off the trailers and set up in the morning and those same items that you pack up and load back onto the trailers are things that God himself has provided for the ministry of Life Point Church. And because that is true, they are holy to him. They may look mundane to you. They're holy to him. Never forget that, that what you do is holy, it's honorable, it's essential to something miraculous that God wants to do between the hours of 7 a.m. and 1 p.m. each Sunday. In the lives of children, of youth and adults, something God might be wanting to teach you or a miracle that, that he wants to perform in your life or in the life of our church. Never complain, but give thanks to God that he calls you worthy to serve him in that way. Would you stand if you serve in that way right now? Let's just honor. There's several of you. Come on. Come on. Just stand. Come on. going to be late. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Kohath are these priests we're talking about. They're the ones who were responsible for the holy items that had to be carried on their shoulders, things that couldn't be set on a wagon for fear that they would fall off and be desecrated. There were things that had to be carried on the shoulders, chief among them the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark of the Atonement of Christ. the holy ark of the presence and power of God. The third element then is this, that these priests carrying the ark of the covenant on their shoulders are standing firm in the Jordan. And the priest standing firm in the river holding the ark of the covenant is a powerful image of intercession, the ministry of intercession. Now, let's just remind ourselves from, from the story of what, what's going on here. Let me read four passages very quickly from Joshua 3 and 4. 
First of all, Joshua 3.8, the command to the Levites, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand firm in the Jordan. Stand firm in the Jordan. Joshua 3.17, now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Some people have set themselves to the task of kind of estimating how long it would take to get across 2.5 million people, perhaps, And this is where our Sunday school pictures fail us because in a lot of our Sunday school pictures, we see one leader might have a staff in his hand. He looks courageous. And and behind him are people walking single file with smiles on their faces. And they're holding hands and there are rabbits and butterflies. And they just don't seem to have a care in the world as they follow the leader. But that wasn't this story. This story is more like rawhide. <laughs> There's a huge cloud of dust. There were wagons. There were parents. There were ankle biters running around. Children scattering. Where's Johnny? Where's Sally? I don't know. Disappeared into a cloud of dust. million people, all of their baggage, all of their livestock, all their stuff, along with thousands, hundreds of thousands armed for war. So the priests who are standing firm in the Jordan, some people estimate, were standing there for two days. Studs, I say. Joshua 4, 10 to 11, for the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. I would too. There was a river up there. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Verses 15 to 18 of chapter 4. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony now to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The ark of the Lord went ahead of the Israelites into the midst of the Jordan on the shoulders of the priests. The ark represented the Lord their God, the Lord of all the earth. The priests were the first ones into the river. They were the last ones out. God went ahead of them and God came behind them. It was all God's work from beginning to end. Intercession. Standing 
firm in the power and the presence of God for the sake of the people. We are never more like Christ when we stand firm interceding for the church. Isaiah 53, 12, prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ saw it with clarity for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What does Jesus do with his time these days? He intercedes for you and me before the Father. He pleads our case. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, speaking, of course, of human priests, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore he is able to save completely. In fact, that word is a, in a continuous sense. He is able to keep on saving completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, there will, there will never be a time this side of heaven until all the work that, that God has given the church to do in the world is done. There will never be a time when intense intercessory prayer will not be needed. The river of impossibility becomes the river of possibility when we stand firm like Christ, like those priests, in the power of prayer. So that the psalmist, years later, looking back on this event, said this, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, and then over us would have gone the raging waters. See, I, I know this today as the pastor of this church. I, I, I know that if the Lord is not on our side, there, there is nothing we can do. Uh, none of the dreams and visions that we have will, will ever come to fruition if the Lord is not on our side. But if the Lord is on our side, if the Lord is on our side, there is nothing that's going to stop him. And all we have to do is get in line and do what he commands us to do. The key to prayer is simply praying. It's not learning big words or, you know, some tight posture of your face. some evangelical vibrato as you pray is simply talking to God. It is simply talking to God. The Bible says be constant in prayer. Prayer opens the pathway to God's possibilities. So please pray. Pray for vision next. If the Lord's not on our side, then it's a foolhardy venture. 
Pray for the pastors and the elders. Pray for those who teach your children. Pray for our worship leaders. Pray for our youth. Pray for our youth ministry. We're in a time of transition in the leadership of our youth ministry right now. We're looking for people who feel a call of God to love on young people, teenagers. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you. But please pray with us that God provides those people. Pray for the marriages in this church. There are many marriages in this church right now that are struggling. Pray for people that you know in your life who don't know Christ. Pray. Let me close with this. The people still had, didn't they, to pass over. I mean, here's, here are the priests in the river. The river had stopped flowing. The, the, the riverbed has turned miraculously dry and they're standing in the presence and the power of God and in the presence of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. They're standing and the river from Adam has been cut off. They're standing, but the people had to cross over. They had to pass over. They had to follow into the place of risk. And they crossed over in haste. When God opens the way, get moving. Get moving in the direction in which he is pointing you. On September 14, 1860, Charles Blondin, a tightrope walker from France, became the first ever to cross over Niagara Falls on a high wire, a quarter of a mile in length at a height of 160 feet above the falls. No net. Crowds gathered on the Canadian side, the American side of the river to watch as he crossed, not just once, but several times, back and forth. True story. Story I read says he crossed once in a sack. I don't know how one does that. Once on stilts, once on a bicycle, once even blindfolded. And the crowd went nuts when he pushed a wheelbarrow across the wire full of potatoes. And then at one point he he stopped and he addressed this question to his audience. Do you believe that I can take a person across the tightrope in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd just went nuts. We believe you are the greatest tightrope walker in the world. We believe. And then when the crowd died down, he waited and then he said, who will be the first? Think anyone stepped up? Nope. Not on that occasion. See, the story illustrates a a real life picture of what faith actually requires of us. The crowd had watched Blondin cross high over the river time after time and they, they said... They believed that he could take someone else with him. But when it came to that moment of truth, when their faith was put to the test, when their professed faith required something of them, their actions proved they truly did not believe. In the same way, it's one thing for us to say we believe in God. However, it is only shown to be true faith when we put our faith in the only one who can take us across the river. And when we follow him through the risky places where he wants to lead us. 
one of the leaders of the evangelical church in the early 20th century and, and a man whose writings I admire is A.W. Tozer. In one of his books, he said this, that God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan only things we can do ourselves. If the Lord is on our side, there's nothing, there is nothing that he will not accomplish if we trust him. We're willing to get into the wheelbarrow, take a risk, make a sacrifice, follow. I don't know what God will do through this vision next campaign. I don't. Uh, But here's what I believe. I believe that God is calling the leaders to go first. And he's calling each of us who call LifePoint Church our home to follow. And we'll see where it goes. We'll see what God does. But I would rather in the final analysis, get in the wheelbarrow and stay on this side of the river. And let me extend the, the metaphor just a little bit further. You, you may be standing on the side of the river making a decision about whether you will trust personally in Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, I, I know of no other Savior I know of no other Savior. He's the only one that can deal with your sin problem. He's the only one that can reconcile you to God. And I don't know where you are today. I know where a lot of you are, but I don't know where all of you are. And I don't, I don't know where your, your heart is in relationship to Christ. And, and you may be coming here. We, we try to preach the gospel with as much clarity and simplicity as we can every week. Make it clear. And maybe you've heard the you've heard the gospel, and you you still haven't gotten in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> you haven't walked into the riverbed. Maybe today's the day. I would invite you to come. We're we're gonna sing a closing song, and uh, I'm gonna stand right over there. If you would like this morning to give your life to Christ, or if you just would like someone to pray with you, I, I would like to pray with you. Our pastors and elders are, are, will be ready to pray with you. Uh, you come, and uh, we'd, we'd, we would be happy to pray. It doesn't matter what it is. We would love to pray with you. So as we sing the song, you come. And uh, at the same time, at the corners are the communion tables that represent to us, help us remember the sacrifice of Christ, the bread represents his body that he gave for us. His, the, the juice represents his blood that was shed for us. You come during this time according to your need. At the back is uh, also for those of you who need gluten-free bread, there's a gluten-free table at the back there for you. Let's worship him together.